Hello, welcome back to our podcast. I'm Christina Young and tonight with Zoe and Joe, we'll be sitting around in our book lounge talking about the novel Violetta by Isabel Allende. Just to forewarn you, before you dive into our discussion, there may be one or two spoilers. Violetta comes into the world on a stormy day in 1920, the first daughter in a family of five boisterous sons. From the start, her life is marked by extraordinary events, for the ripples of the Great War are still being felt, even as the Spanish flu arrives on the shores of her South American homeland, almost at the moment of her birth. Through her father's prescience, the family will come through that crisis unscathed, only to face a new one, as the Great Depression transforms the genteel city life that she has known. Her family loses all and she's forced to retreat to a wild and beautiful but remote part of the country. There, she will come of age and her first suitor will come calling. In a letter to someone she loves above all others, Violetta recounts devastating heartbreak and passionate affairs, times of both poverty and wealth, terrible loss and immense joy, and a life shaped by some of the most important events of history, the fight for women's rights, the rise and fall of tyrants, and ultimately not one but two pandemics. Through the eyes of a woman whose unforgettable passion, determination and sense of humour will carry her through a lifetime of upheaval, Isabel Allende once more brings us an epic that is both fiercely inspiring and deeply emotional. Hi Zoe, hi Joe. great to have you back here with me in Book Lounge. I can see you both already snuggled up on your sofas with your fleecy blankets over you. So anyway, let's crack on with this wonderful novel, Violetta, written by Isabel Allende. Zoe, I'm going to start with you. What did you think about this novel? This was a difficult one for me because I went in with high expectations. So I'd already read The Japanese Lover by Elizabeth Isabel Allende a few years ago. Really, really enjoyed it. Remembered how great she is at writing romances and the scenery of South America was coming alive again. But in comparison, I really felt like this book was a bit of a slog at times, which is weird because there's no shortage of events covering the 100 years of Violetta's life. There's so much going on. But I didn't really connect with the character herself. Um, I know you're going to go on and, and talk about that a bit more. But yeah, it was a mixed bag for me, this one. What about you, Joe? Did it do it for you? Tick some boxes? Was, it, yeah, it did. I really, really enjoyed it. I like the idea of the span of life family saga, so that the story of a person's entire life, basically, and the historical highlights that they went through along the way. And in that respect, it reminds me very much of The Heart's Invisible Furies, which we read in Book Club six months ago, something like that. Great story of a person's life and all the historical things that they bumped into along the way. So really well done from that point of view. It kept my attention all the way through. I really loved it. I think I scored it an eight out of ten at our book club meetings. I found it very easy read, but also I think she's an amazing writer. And it was the first Isabel Allende book I'd read, though, so maybe that coloured my view of it. Mm -hmm. Because actually, 
um, when we've been discussing it in our book club meetings this month, people who had previously read Isabel Allende's stories have been slightly disappointed with this one, which I thought was quite interesting. Okay, I'm glad it's not just me then, because I really went into this with the best of expectations. Like I say, she's a fantastic romance writer and knowing that this woman has had such a colourful life from the outset. But yeah, okay, I'm glad it's not just me then that felt like that. No, 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 it definitely wasn't you. But I just thought that was so interesting, you know, that people were down marking it because of that, really. So let's just start with the character of Violetta. You know, we're going through a hundred years of her life. There's an awful lot to pack in to that hundred years. What did you feel about her as a character? And, and did she evolve throughout the course of the book for you? And which period of her life did you find most interesting when you were reading the book? Well, yeah, I think she does evolve. Yeah, I wasn't sure whether I really liked her that much. She does evolve. She starts off as a child, a, a spoiled little rich girl, basically, in a well-off family in, in a good part of um, Santiago in Chile. And she has a very privileged upbringing. Um, obviously, she has the shock of um, things happening to the members of her family, which she is involved in. And then a bit later on, she goes on to become very successful financially. She's a very astute woman financially, does very well. I think by the time she gets into towards middle at uh, middle or early old age, she starts to mellow politically, and in terms of her personality, she becomes a bit more likable, and she becomes a bit more sympathetic towards the leftist arguments of her son, which had irritated her until that point. Um, and she went on when she was a lot older to um, found her own foundation, charitable foundation mm. to help women in trouble, families in trouble in Chile. So she becomes more likable to me towards the end. I find it interesting, Joe, that you kind of read her as getting more conservative or perhaps um, not less conservative, but more, more mellow and more accepting of different political viewpoints as she aged. Because for me, I, I kind of felt the opposite, actually. I think the foundation that she developed in later years wouldn't have been possible without the kind of heroes that she has in her youth of uh, Teresa and Josephine, her guardian, nanny, um, What's a Victorian word for it? You know what I mean? She's a bit more than a babysitter, isn't she, Josephine Taylor? Governor. Governor, that's the one I'm looking for, yeah. Um, so I found that period of her life most interesting when she was in part of the family exile, but was able to take Teresa and Josephine with her. The things that she learned in her adolescence about living in a rural community that was completely different from the wealth and the luxury that her family came from. It's just really hard for me to get a sense of what she was like as a character at that time, because it's all written in the past and because it's um, a letter to her grandson, Camillo. She's always saying things like oh but this I didn't know at the time oh but this you'll understand later and for me I, I wanted to understand sometimes the passion and how she felt in the moment and see those views change and develop over time and I feel like a lot of that was lost from writing it as the perspective as an old woman writing to her grandson because there's definitely certain things you wouldn't say to your grandparents and vice versa although she doesn't hold back on uh, talking about some of her lovers I didn't think that was realistic <laughs> maybe it is for that family <laughs> Yeah, exactly that. I mean, would she really have written about her sex life in so much detail to your grandson? But yeah. I mean, somebody else mentioned in our book clubs, and, and this was a good point, I felt, that he happens to, he turns out to be a Jesuit priest, doesn't he, Camilio, the grandson? So 
maybe she was almost writing it in the in the way of a sort of confessional to the priest you know which is something I thought was interesting that hadn't occurred to me when I was reading it but yeah I could see how that would fit part of this letter writing seems to have been inspired by Isabel Allende's own correspondence with her mother from the age of 16 she did this almost on a daily basis when she was away from her mother which she seemed to be quite a lot and they sort of shared this monologue that recorded their lives between the two of them and I think she's taken some of herself and some of her mother and put them in this book really um so there's, there's parts of both of them in this book and I thought that was quite interesting but this epistolatory or epistolary style did it add to the overall effect of the novel Zoe because it sounds like you maybe found it a bit frustrating at times is that fair? Yeah I did I think everything's different in hindsight and reflection and she was already sowing seeds throughout so when it comes to Torito's necklace there's a point quite early on in the, ne- in the novel where she makes it for him as his first birthday gift and says oh this will be important later. Um, I didn't like that signposting too much I like to be guided into my story I would have preferred if the revelation about how Torito ended um, at the end of his life would have been shown and would have been left as as a surprise as it would naturally be in life rather than going oh okay this character is probably going to come to a sticky end or be involved in some trouble here because of this highlight I feel like that foreshadowing kind of ruined some surprises for me it didn't really it didn't really bother me to be honest I know some people they find it difficult but uh, I, I tend to take the, conf- the confessional viewpoint that it's it's a it's a way of a device for a first person narrative so she says i'm writing a letter but actually she's telling a story the actual mechanics of how she's doing it is really irrelevant she's telling her own story her own way and yeah. the fact that it's in a long letter is neither here nor there to me it doesn't bother me okay so we've got these two pandemics haven't we bookending this novel so we have the 1920 Spanish flu pandemic, which is the year that Violetta is born. And at the end of her life, when she's 100, um, we've got COVID going on. Did that timeline encourage you to examine what it means to live during and through such times more closely? And um, what does it mean, really? What does it take to keep going when the world's filled with turmoil and unease and all these major events happening? You know. We've had a taste of that ourselves, I feel, in the last few years. We're probably living through some of it now, I feel, as well in the UK. Um, I feel like we've had about 100 years in the last two years, to be honest. (laughs) I mean, how have we kept going? I mean, what what, what does it take to get through really difficult times? I I mean, do we have much choice? Well, yeah, number one, do we have a choice? But number two, for what I drew strength from in the novel was not um, just the fact that she's born into a pandemic, but just the circumstances of Violetta's birth and what her mother has to go through for her to be born in the 1920s. So she's already mm-hmm. had a number of miscarriages. She's There's no contraceptive. She's had to bear many children. Uh, it's really taken a toll on her body. You know, she once was a debutante and uh, she gives birth to Violetta in the middle of a rainstorm with no electricity, just a few women to help her, presumably no pain medication and for me, that is the change that is most significant throughout the novel, the rights and the circumstances for women throughout her lifetime. The world that she was born into is a very different world than she left. 
It's no wonder, is it really, that her mother, Violetta's mother, who didn't really seem to do an awful lot of mothering, active mothering, spent sort of seemed to spend the rest of her life in bed, not not being very well, you know. Yeah, um, I didn't really like, uh, well, I suppose from a child's point of view, it, it's probably more realistic, but I didn't like that about Violetta, that until um, her mother's death and, and she kind of has an apparition of her many years later, that she doesn't seem to connect the dots that this woman's had multiple instances of, of childbirth she's had six children by this point and it's completely drained her body um and i don't feel like very violet uh, is very sympathetic to anybody really with any kind of illness or disability she just sort of like oh well you know can't you get over it and for me yeah. that kind of it's it was good it showed that she's not a completely uh, made up character and she has her own uh, flaws and and ways of judgment that she then comes to change as she gets older but for me I was kind of like oh give, give her a break. Um, well it's quite convenient isn't it I suppose it's a it's, it's it's a good marketing point for the book I mean it's setting the hundred years life it's just coincidental that we've got two pandemics that fit it either end of that life um, but for me the, the the biggest thing in her life the biggest event and hardest thing to deal with was of course the uh, military coup in Chile and the dictatorship that lasted for nearly 20 years and the way that um, a lot of Chileans were treated by the by the um, ruling junta um, and the fact that Violeta takes takes part in trying to help these people get away. She's got her son so worried about her son getting away which he plots spoiler in a way he does get away. This mirrors Isabel Allende's own life that she does spent a lot of her time during the dictatorship helping people to get away uh, until she ends up on the blacklist herself. And then mm -hmm. she needs to get away, obviously, for her own safety. So she has quite a hard time. And if she's reflecting that, if Isabella is reflecting that in Violetta, which I think she is, I think she's had quite a hard life. We need to tell the listeners yeah. that it's actually, we don't know that it's Chile from the book. We, we're working that out aren't we ourselves There's because she knows you know she mentions yeah. going south in the summer and the andes are involved so we get an idea geographically of where it is and, and similarly to joe i wasn't naming it in my head but also i was thinking of this country without it being said as maybe being chile or peru so yeah i think she gives us the clues but it is a very specific decision to leave it unnamed isn't it that is quite significant I think there's a reason why she did that, um, just from some of the stuff that I've seen online. There's, there is a, a reason why she left the country unnamed. I don't know. Why do you think she made that choice? Well, uh, I think the reason is that she's basically saying this could happen anywhere. This the rise of a dictatorship and the repression of a whole people and the, the disappearance of tens of thousands of people, which was done. That could happen anywhere. And of course, it has happened in all sorts of places. It's not something which is unique to her country, which is Chile. It, it could happen anywhere. And she's, it's sort of a warning, I suppose, that this is what happens if you allow people to get absolute power and you, you allow them to take over. We've worked out that it's probably Chile. But I mean, some people who have read the book um, in book club have commented that they knew nothing. Absolutely. You know, that they're, they're sort of a younger generation. They didn't know anything about what was happening in South America, particularly in Chile and Argentina, 
in the 70s and 80s. That's something I took from this book for sure. I, I knew none of this history um, being born in the 90s. It's not really something that's taught as part of world history. I feel South America kind of gets forgotten about with the uh, North America, Canada, Mexico, you know. So I think for them reading it, it was quite confusing about where this was. And, you know, if you don't know any of the background to that, then um, it can be a little bit kind of where is this? You know, we're, we're not we're not sure if, if you don't know the background. But um, for us older members of book club, the older generation of book club were able to work it out because we have lived through that, that age. Violetta experiences different kinds and stages of love throughout this book, doesn't she? She has several relationships. Um, starts off with, is it Fabian, the, um, the German guy, mm-hmm. um, and, and then moves to the passion of the affair with Julian Brava. What about those two relationships? They're very different people, aren't they, that she's, she's, she's with? Did they stri- how did they strike you when you came across them? Well, for me, I think it was really interesting to take into context how little choice Violetta would have had. And I think in also the society, it's very often there's lots of references to Catholicism. Um, there's a very Catholic way of thinking that if a woman is involved with anybody sexually, then it's her burden. She shamed her whole entire family. So I think if this book was set in a more contemporary setting, Fabian may have been Violetta's high school sweetheart. They may have had their first kiss, first you know, time sharing together, losing their virginities, she would have explored that and gone, "Mm, this isn't the right person for me, and then naturally moved on to somebody else. But because of the societal constraints of the time, because Fabian was interested in her, and I think she was more interested in the experience of desire and and learning about sex and her body than she was in him. They had Mm. to stick together for such a long time. And then struggled with the whole process of getting their marriage annulled whereas I think in a contemporary society that's more understanding of uh, premarital relationships they maybe would have got together then she would have had a fling and there would have been a lot less at stake for her in that relationship I think. I think you're right as well living out in the far-flung you know, bits of the country where she was, there wasn't an awful lot of choice of men. That <laughs> I don't think she encountered many men, to be honest. It sounds like it was him and Torito who were kind of of marriageable age for her. And as we know, Torito is kind of seen as, as more of a family brother. So, yeah, that's it, really. She had very limited options as well. And she'd come from quite a wealthy background, so she would have been looking for someone of a similar social standing, wouldn't she? So Torito would never have been able no. to, you know, no. to be married to um, what did you think of the second relationship that she had with uh, the passion at well, well, with Julian? I say, it certainly was an explosion of passion, wasn't it? I mean, it, <laughs> I, I agree with what Zoe's, how Zoe's analysed the two relationships, by the way. I think with Julian Bravo, who was basically a psychopath and a war hero and dashing and handsome and all the rest of it, but really sets, sets her on fire, or they set each other on fire, and she can't control herself, basically. And she's blissfully happy um, with him for a while when it's sex and excitement at the beginning, although it does go off once he starts to misbehave and she learns what he's really like. And it, it does raise the question of exciting man or or not so exciting man, doesn't it? I'm sure I know you want to talk about <laughs> Yeah, I mean, she's, she goes through four main relationships in the book, doesn't she? Because she comes across... Is it Roy or is, is it Roy or Ray? I can't remember now. Roy, One of the detective. Roy. Yeah. Yeah. 
did you like him Zoe of, of the all the relationships which ones did you like one did you like best well I liked him as a person but I just I had enough with Violetta by this point I was like realistically how is it that you form an intimate relationship with the person who's been spying on your daughter I'm sorry at that point I was just like nah, this is mm. I'm not buying into this relationship however good you say it is it's too yeah. implausible yeah. do you think that you know in what ways does our capacity for love change over time change over our lives perhaps do you think it does I think it's hard to say I think the circumstances are always different for Violetta she never really loved Fabian to begin with you know so for her almost her first relationship was the one with Julian Bravo and then I think as we get older we certainly want different things our priorities change but also the people that we're mixing with and our varieties and our options are very very different when we're young and and we don't have the same drivers I feel as we get older no. speaking of someone who's you know past a certain age <laughs> I uh, feel like the drivers that I had maybe even in my 20s or 30s have you know kind of dissolved a little bit along the way um so what I might be looking for in terms of love might be more like companionship or you know someone right. to share things with but not so much you know um that big passion I, I agree entirely I think your your needs do change over time and when, when we start off in life um we start off basically as an adult we start off wanting sex and excitement and then by the time you get to middle age or old age you simmer down a bit and what you're looking for more is companionship a friend but more than a friend companionship I suppose and someone to grow old with she finds that in the end, of course, with the last of her lovers, with Harold. And she seemed to be fairly settled with him, didn't she? Because she met, they got together in her 60s. Mm. And, you know, and that kind of, we're talking about, you know, what do you want from love as you grow older? But, I mean, maybe you don't want a relationship. You know, you get to a point in your life where you're not really looking for that anymore as well. Um, I think that's quite true of many people as you grow older. And you're perfectly happy. Did you think, did you find any humour in this book when you were reading it? And, uh, yeah, I'm nodding. So uh, I feel like I have to kind of verbally say that out loud because we're on a podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm nodding away here. Yeah, I, I did find humour. I found humour a lot in her aunts, uh, Pia and Pilar. I really missed them towards the second half of the novel. I would have loved to have understood their take on things. And as she goes through her life, of course, a lot of the family members she grew up with, they either estranged or they pass away. So I feel like a lot of the more humorous moments didn't come from Violetta, but actually the people around her. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I can't remember anything specifically from Violetta where I laughed, but I did, I did, you know, smile about some other stuff that went on. It's, it's hard actually to remember it because there's so much. So much. I know. I'm struggling and we're all struggling with names. You know, it's not as if she has hundreds of lovers over her life, but just so much happens in this novel. It's, it's a lot for the length that it is. Yeah. And it's not super long, is it either? I mean, I, I was kind of making a list of all the things that we're involved I and mean, he's got a bit of everything we've got wealth to poverty we've got risky behaviors we've got relationships abuse marriage divorce suicide depression and the depression and a military coup so you know a lot oh, don't in. forget the pandemics <laughs> oh, the pandemic as well yeah yeah we can't forget the pandemic but yeah there's a, there's a lot packed in but then I guess we're talking about 100 years of someone's life so um there probably are going to be quite a lot of events, aren't there? Your letters aren't Pia says in in one of the book in part of the book, 
better a boring husband than an unreliable one. Do you agree with that statement? I mean, do you think passion or loyalty is more important for a good marriage? Well, I think ideally a bit of both is what you want, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, we, we all want some passion and we all, all want a reliable, um, loyal partner. If we, if we want one at all, you, mm. you will hope your partner is going to be loyal and, um, and loyal to you and you also hope for passion. So I don't think it's necessarily a binary choice between one or the other. You want a bit mm -hmm. of both. How about you, Zoe? Because you're so much younger. <laughs> yeah. <What? laughs> I, I, just as a theoretical exercise, playing devil's advocate, loyalty is 100% um, for me. I've um, always been in monogamous relationships. But being in a relationship where the passion has gone is one of the most horrible things um, because then it becomes a different kind of relationship. If we're talking about romantic and sexual relationships, there needs to be, if passion's the wrong word, and I'm not talking about passion in terms of sexual passion, but interest and intrigue in each other, that kind of passion, that's essential. Yeah. That's what makes a relationship with somebody different than any other relationships in your life. And the moment you're completely apathetic to somebody, that for me is when a relationship dies, whether you're still together or not, because what's the point yeah. then, you know? Apathy is, is the opposite of passion in this instance, I would say. And that's more important. But I would like mm. my partner to be reliable too, as Joe says. Yeah, so that sort of passion, that interest in each other, mm. it, when that's lost, and it can be lost, can't it? And people can continue with relationships for many years after that's been lost. Um, is it's as as you say, really important. And how do you keep that going through an, a very long relationship? You know, that's 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 the challenge, isn't it? Keeping the interest, keeping the passion going. I when I was reading it, it almost felt to me like I was reading a memoir of mm. some sort. Yeah, I don't know was true for you guys I just felt like it you know it could have been someone's memoir I didn't necessarily feel like a letter at times it just felt like you know she was writing about her, her memories of her life and picking out I imagine you have to pick out the events that you want to include in the letter because there must have been loads and loads of events she could have put in but she must have picked out the main ones do you agree was it a bit like a memoir to you guys when you were reading it yeah, I thought so. That's what, what I meant by first person narrative being the, the the story, and that this letter was just a device for delivering it. But it, mm. it is, you're right, it is in effect a memoir. It's the story of her life by her. Uh, interesting that she's talking about events over the course of 100 years. So she's having to remember things that happened when she was a small girl, mm. including a very dramatic thing that happens to her when she's about seven or eight years old. And she's remembering that through the lens of the subsequent life of 90 something years before she gets to 100. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting idea that do you remember over a long life everything accurately? Do you remember it through the sort of filter of all of your life subsequently? What about you, Zoe? Was it like a memoir to you? Yeah, just the level of detail was incredible. Um, like you say, at times I did forget that I was reading what's meant to be a letter to a grandson just because of the sheer level of detail. And not all of the sections of her life are given equal weighting either. So quite a large part of the novel is spent on the first part of her life, the coup. And then from there's a time period of about 30 years that's just covered in the last chapter because of the sheer mm -hmm. level of detail. 
in the mm. beginning parts of the novel. I just feel it's really an amazing thing, even if it's not a novel that I completely got on with and enjoyed all the way through, to go into that much level of detail about somebody's life who hasn't existed. Um, and the level of intricacy was was really great. When we get to the last chapter, she writes there, there's a time to live and a time to die, and in between there's a time to remember. And I guess this is what she's doing in this book, isn't she? She's memories is a big theme. How, how did the book, if it did, make you reflect upon your own life? And, and what did you take away from reading it? Well, like I said, I, I knew nothing about the political history of South America um, and kind of the coup and the political situations that were happening in, in the 70s and 80s as I didn't live through them. Um, but it also made me think about how this whole 20th century and then into the 21st now has been such an enormous time of political upheaval that we've had it shoved down our throats a lot that it's been in unprecedented times in the last few years. But it really just made me think quite how unprecedented this whole time has been, even though it's not a time I've personally lived through. It, it's really made me think about the changes that happened in the 20th century on, on so many different levels. For me, um, because I did live through the um, what was happening in South America in the 70s and 80s, it caused me to remember all of that political stuff that was going on then. Um, and it just seems like such a long time ago. But in fact, it's not that long ago. And it did make me think about, yes, it could be anywhere. And, and you know, um, going forward, things being so up in the air in countries at the moment, it does make you worry that could this happen? Could this happen in my own country sometime in the future? You you just don't know. So it did make me reflect on that. So it was a bit of a walk down memory lane to when I was in my 20s, really, for me, when all that was going on. Um, and I was very aware of it. I, I remember it at the time. I rem remember the um, military assault on President, President Allende's compound. Now, I should, should mention that, that Isabel Allende is related to Salvador Allende, who was the first ever democratically elected Marxist leader anywhere ever in the world. Wow. So mm. Marxism normally only rises through revolution or uprising. It was the first time a Marxist leader was voted in by the people democratically. And in the end, the military with the encouragement of the CIA, got rid of him. That's what's come, come out more recently. At the time, we weren't aware, were we, that the CIA may have been instrumental in that. But it sounds as if they were. Would you recommend this book to a to book clubs? Yes, I would recommend this book to book clubs out there. Um, like you were saying at the beginning, Christina, for those who are familiar with the author, it, it generates some good discussions about our previous books. And I think even if you don't enjoy this one, I had moments where I kind of was skim reading. Um, it, it makes you aware of Isabel Allende, who's a fantastic writer, fantastic in terms of her level of description and just the lives she imagines, um, the times and the places she can take you to with her writing. So, so I think it's a good one for that reason, just to introduce book clubs to her if they're not familiar with her writing. Yeah, I would I would recommend it. And I, I do think for book clubs, it's a good book to, to provoke, provoke a discussion of things like the history of Chile and its military dictatorship. And as Zoe says, younger people would know nothing about that. Nope. Uh, you, you have to have been alive at the time and of sufficient age to have seen it on the news and what have you. So I would go along with you both and say, yeah, I think it's a good book for a book club discussion. 
on that note, we will finish our discussion this evening and I will just wind up by telling you that next month we're going to be talking about the book A Sweet Obscurity, which is one of Patrick Gale's novels, hoping that you join us again then. In the meantime, keep reading. Thank you for listening to Gloucester Book Club's podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google and Apple Podcasts and many more. We look forward to having you join us again soon.